Well, welcome to week three of the OSHA Lifelong Learning Institute's Winter Speaker Series. Thanks for braving the wind and rain to be here. Our speaker today is Catherine Fisk, and the title of her talk is Reimagining Labor Law. Professor Fisk joined the Berkeley Law faculty in 2017. Prior to this, she was a member of the founding faculty of the University of California Irvine Law School. Her other faculty appointments include Duke University Law School, the University of Southern California Law School, and Loyola Law School of Los Angeles. Fisk's recent books include Writing for Hire, Unions, Hollywood, and Madison Avenue, and two case books, Labor Law in the Contemporary Workplace and the Legal Profession. She's also the author of Working Knowledge, Employee Innovation, and the Rise of Corporate Intellectual Property. Her current book project, A Legal History of Lawyers for the Labor Movement in the Mid-20th Century, examines the challenges faced by lawyers and labor unions as the courts and Congress steadily increased restrictions on labor protest between 1940 in 1990. Please welcome Catherine Fisk. Thank you very much for coming today, and I especially appreciate it given the weather. So if you came based, hoping for a talk about contemporary labor law reform efforts, you'll have to wait till the end to hear about that. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the book that I'm researching now, which, as was said, looks at labor lawyers and labor protest in the mid-20th century. And to tie it all together, we will see that labor law re reform projects that are going on now are essentially an effort to undo the law that I'm going to talk to you about and the consequences that that law brought about. Um, some of you may remember this from firsthand knowledge, and so I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. Um, but in the 1950s, the labor movement declined as a social movement. It had been the social movement par excellence in the 1930s. Labor activism, strikes, general strikes here in San Francisco in 1934 and in Minneapolis in the same year, picketing, boycotts, were one of the factors that completely transformed the American economy and gave the political impetus for the adoption of the New Deal and for the Supreme Court's decision in 1937 to cease striking down progressive economic and social legislation and instead allow Congress and the states to regulate wages, hours, conditions of work, and also to stop treating labor unions as unlawful conspiracies which they had been treated as an unlawful conspiracy from the early 19th century in the United States all the way up until the mid-1930s. After the adoption of the New Deal, the National Labor Relations Act, also known as the Wagner Act, which pr protects the right to join a union and bargain collectively, the Supreme Court began reining in labor protest by finding that it was not speech protected by the First Amendment. And then, as you may know, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this, there were a whole series of cases brought against unions, against their lawyers, trying to restrict activism by labor unions. And the hypothesis that I'm exploring in this book and that I'm going to talk to you about today is that the legal restrictions on labor protest and the efforts to go after unions and their lawyers who engaged in the protest were one of the things that transformed the labor movement from a social movement into sort of a bureaucratic institution of advanced capitalism and then into whatever it became by 1980. I'll let you apply your own noun or adjective based on your own knowledge of the labor movement. At the same time, 
starting, as you may know, depending on where you start counting, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, the civil rights movement embraced all the tactics that the labor movement had once used to pressure legal change, social change, and eventually the Supreme Court treated social... uh, civil rights activism as speech protected under the First Amendment and as a valuable social phenomenon. And so what explains these different trajectories of social movement activism and the law when both of them were fundamentally about redistribution of economic power from the top of the wealth and power hierarchy towards the bottom? That's what I'm looking at. If you know any labor history, this will be familiar to you, but these are sort of the familiar stories about what happened between 1940 and 1980. First of all, um, in 1947, Congress enacted the Taft-Hartley Act, which made it unlawful for a union to try to enforce the rights of its workers under federal law if any officer of the union refused to swear an affidavit that he or she was not, never had been a member of the Communist Party. It was a controversial provision of the law. Most unions eventually knuckled under and signed those affidavits or ejected from their leadership those leaders who refused to sign. One of the very few unions that resisted that was the West Coast International Longshore and Warehouse Workers Union, uh, the West Coast ILWU, and I'll talk a little bit more about them in a minute. But when you ousted all the suspected communists, actual communists, former communists, or people who wouldn't say whether what they thought about communism from the labor movement, you ousted most of the activists on the progressive left, also those people who were most committed to racial egalitarianism, because whatever else you want to say about the Communist Party in the 30s and 40s, they were very active in opposing race discrimination in employment and elsewhere. We've also heard the familiar story that labor became more conservative because the craft union tradition, think of the construction trades, the painters, the bricklayers, the sheet metal workers, they dominated and they tended to be more conservative, focused on skilled labor rather than industrial unionism of the Congress of Industrial Organizations or other worker organizations that favored a more broad-scale approach to organizing and bargaining. A familiar story is that after the Taft-Hartley Act especially, labor unions embraced collective bargaining as the way to improve wages and working conditions over legislation or other methods by which conditions could be improved. And so it, labor voluntarily became a very sort of contract-based and bureaucratic institution that was good at protecting its members, but not so much anybody else. The classic example of that, of course, is the United Auto Workers or the Teamsters, both of which negotiated very good working conditions for their members, some people think at the expense of non-members. The National Labor Relations Act, the NLRA, the Wagner Act, enacted in 1935, excluded from coverage agricultural and domestic workers, which meant it excluded very large numbers of Latinx and African-American workers who worked predominantly in domestic and agricultural work. It was a political compromise that some people thought was necessary to get the legislation through Congress because at the time, the Democratic Party, which was the party that was advocating the National Labor Relations Act had Southern members who were rock solid racists and as a condition of getting their votes, which was necessary to get the bill passed, they compromised to leave labor relations in the South and the Southwest untouched. For a whole variety of reasons, some having to do with the racism of the dominant unions, some having to do with decisions that 
um, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People made about what to prioritize. There came to be a division between labor law, which refers to unions and collective bargaining, and employment discrimination or fair employment practices law, which prohibits status-based discrimination. And these two bodies of law being separate and separately enforced, some people believe had long-term consequences both for the nature of American liberalism and American politics, but also for the strength of labor as a movement. And then of course, the NAACP quite famously in the late 40s turned away from an early emphasis that it had had on allying with labor movement to focus on non-discrimination by unions and also by employers and getting black members into unions in favor of focus on education, Brown versus Board of Education, places of public accommodation, and that this strategic choice that the NAACP made had long-term consequences for labor civil rights coalitions. As you may know, at the very end of his life, um, Dr. Martin Luther King had begun to rethink the wisdom of focusing just on education in places of public accommodation and was in Memphis in April of 1968 to support the sanitation workers strike and was starting to move in the direction of allying with labor, but his assassination cut that short. And so for all these reasons, people think, there was a decline in what could have been a multiracial or interracial class-based working people's movement in favor of the labor movement over here and the civil rights movement over there. One of the things that my book project that I'm working on is trying to focus on is what role did lawyers play in all of this? Because of course, as a law professor and somebody who's interested in studying the legal profession and as a former labor lawyer, I always think there's a lawyer story there. So let me take you back to the middle 1930s, Washington DC in particular, although not exclusively, an organization known as the New Negro Alliance began to focus on businesses that were white owned in black neighborhoods that sold to black consumers. In fact, many of them had only black consumers essentially because they were neighborhood stores in racially segregated neighborhoods, but refused to hire black clerks. The New Negro Alliance began picketing these businesses and they were incredibly successful actually in prompting these companies to change their employment practices. And so the picture on the left is a photograph of one of the New Negro Alliance pickets. At the same time, in Detroit, Akron, and other industrialized cities, we had the sit-in movement. So there was a massive sit-in at the General Motors plant in Flint, Michigan in 1936-37. It spread throughout Detroit so that, as you can see the picture on the right, the predominantly female employees at the Woolworths in Detroit sat in. That is, they occupied their workplace and refused to leave until the company recognized their union. So you have both civil rights picketing boycotts and labor picketing boycotts, which the story goes, the courts sought to enjoin, but for the fact that Congress had enacted in 1932, a statute known as the Norris LaGuardia Act that made it impermissible for a federal court to issue an injunction in a labor dispute. The, and, that's one reason why there weren't injunctions against many labor disputes in the late 1930s, including the civil rights picketing in the New Negro Alliance. So it, at that moment, it was in the law, didn't matter whether it was a civil rights group or a labor group that was picketing or calling for a boycott, it couldn't be enjoined. Then the Supreme Court held in 1939 and 1940 that labor protest was speech protected by the First Amendment in a whole slew of cases, some involving traditional labor picketing at a workplace, one famous case involving the effort of uh, 
Haig, the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, to ban the CIO from coming anywhere in the city limits of Newark. And literally, they arrested them, put them on boats, and sent them back to New York. Um, Supreme Court held that this was speech protected by the First Amendment. And then the court started to change its mind. And so no sooner had they said that labor protest is speech protected by the First Amendment, then they began saying, well, except in this circumstance, except if there had been some violence associated with the strike, or except if the workers who were picketing were not employed at the workplace, or except if the picketing was about organizing a workplace rather than protesting by unionized workers who were already there, or except if the picketing was a so-called secondary boycott. That means protesting at one company because of its business relations with another company. Um, And then there was, during the term of World War II, either by law or by voluntary agreement, there were no strikes, more or less, during World War II, and the few that existed were enjoined. Um, And then after the war, when there had been a huge amount of profiteering by companies producing goods for the war effort, but there had been a ceiling on wages, and so workers had not shared in the economic growth that war production generated. There was a huge wave of strikes starting in 1945, 46, 47. Congress got a majority, sorry, the Republicans got a majority in Congress in 1946 for the first time since 1932, since the 32 election when the Democrats took Congress, and Congress enacted the Taft-Hartley Act, outlawing the forms of labor protests that were, they considered most disruptive and that the labor movement considered most effective. And so then two things happened that I'm going to talk to you a little bit about today that are legally significant. In 1950, the Supreme Court relying on its labor protest case holding that labor protest was not speech protected by the First Amendment, held for the first time that civil rights picketing was not speech protected by the First Amendment in a case called Hughes versus Superior Court that I'm going to talk about. And then two years later, in another case, Juno Spruce versus ILWU involving the West Coast Longshoremen's Union, the Supreme Court upheld a staggeringly large damages judgment against the ILWU for some picketing that the union thought was protesting an unfair employer practice, but that the court found was illegal under Taft-Hartley. And so the, suddenly the stakes for engaging in picketing had gotten a lot higher, both for civil rights activists and for labor activists. And that's what I'm going to talk about for much of the time today. Eventually, the Supreme Court backed away from these very conservative positions it had taken with respect to civil rights, but never with respect to labor. So in 1963, after the lunch counter sit-ins in, that began in Greensboro, North Carolina, in January and February of 1960, when that litigation reached the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court held that the direct action that had been adopted as a big part of the civil rights movement by the student leaders was speech protected by the First Amendment. Finally, in a case involving a boycott of every white-owned business in Claiborne County, Mississippi, that came out of the Mississippi Freedom Summer activism of 1963-64, the Supreme Court held that a civil rights boycott is protected by the First Amendment in 1982, took that long for the case to get up to the court, at the same time, in the same year that the Supreme Court, in fact, was separated by a few days, same time the Supreme Court held that a labor protest boycott is not speech protected by the First Amendment. This is familiar to labor lawyers. It infuriates us. First Amendment scholars don't teach these cases because, as one of them candidly said to me, and I don't teach them because I can't make any sense of them. They make no sense. Uh, I teach them, of course, when I teach First Amendment because I think you can't understand the First Amendment without understanding labor, but hey. All right, so let's talk about the background of Hughes versus Superior Court. It arose right here in Richmond, California, when the layoffs at the shipyards 
in 1946-47 caused huge increase in unemployment, especially among African-American workers who'd come to the Bay Area to work in the war industry, but were the last hired in many cases or were victims of racism, so were therefore the first fired. And unemployment started to become an alarming problem in Oakland and Richmond, which had substantial at that point um, African-American populations. A man named John Hughes and another man named Lewis Richardson. Richardson was the president of the Richmond chapter of the NAACP, and Hughes was the president of uh, the Richmond chapter of Progressive Citizens of America, which was a national group that favored a third party in the 1948 election. Um, they negotiated unsuccessfully with Lucky Stores, an Oakland-based grocery store chain, to try to get Lucky to abandon its policy of not hiring black store clerks. Lucky refused, and so they took to the streets to picket, just as had happened with the New Negro Alliance in Washington, D.C., 10 years before. And so here is the supermarket where they picketed. Lucky zipped into the state court in Contra Costa County and got the judge to enjoin the picketing. And the, originally, when the injunction was issued, Hughes and Richardson and their supporters stopped picketing. Um, they talked to the national NAACP about whether an injunction against this peaceful protest was unconstitutional under the First Amendment. And the national NAACP, including Thurgood Marshall, encouraged them to make it a test case. So they went back and picketed, got arrested for violating the injunction, and were criminally prosecuted for contempt of a court order. And uh, as the Richmond Record Herald reported, um, the injunction against picketing was against picketing that said anything. Their signs, among them, said, shoot Jim Crow out of Lucky's. They said, Lucky needs to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And they also encouraged Lucky to hire African-American store clerks into vacant positions until the workforce reflected the demographics of the surrounding community, which was about half black. The reason why they advocated that was because Lucky said, oh, we don't discriminate. In fact, it's the union that's the problem. But the retail store clerks, the union that represented those workers, said, no, 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 we have black members, and we have people that we would refer to Lucky if Lucky would hire them, or they could hire people who aren't in the union, and it's fine with us as long as they join the union. Um, and then Lucky said, no, 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 we don't discriminate. We have one black store clerk, which was a classic strategy for companies that were targeted for race discrimination, is to hire one or two people and say, we're not discriminating. And so rather than risk that, they were advocating for a representative workforce, which would be evidence that there was not discrimination. Lucky's lawyers, however, very cleverly focused just on this call for proportional hiring and said, ah, this is race discrimination in reverse. And so they that was the theory on which the case was litigated. That's what they advocated in their briefs. It was a successful strategy. The lawyers for the activists were a group of progressive labor lawyers who were also leaders in civil rights lawyering in the Bay Area, um, long-time labor civil rights lawyers, they fought very hard saying, no, 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 this is about race discrimination. It's not about what we would now call affirmative action, lost in the trial court, won in the state court of appeal, and then they got to the California Supreme Court. The majority opinion by Justice Schauer here on the left said, this is picketing, not speech protected by the First Amendment. We know that from these labor cases. And they're advocating race discrimination, and that's a bad thing. There were two dissents. 
one by Jesse Carter, the justice in the middle, one by the great Roger Trainer here on the right saying, this isn't picketing advocating race discrimination, this is picketing advocating an end to race discrimination. And in any case, doesn't matter what they're saying, it's speech protected by the First Amendment. But those were dissents. The case then went up to the United States Supreme Court. The NAACP, represented by Marion Wynne Perry on the upper left, Thurgood Marshall, of course, famously. Um, Cecil Poole was the lawyer for the NAACP here in the Bay Area, then got nervous about the case because they were worried that the Supreme Court was going to focus just on the so-called proportional representation aspect of the picketing and not on the picketing advocating the elimination of race discrimination. The CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, in an amicus brief by Arthur Goldberg, who's shown here on the right, emphasized this is picketing. It's speech. It should be protected by the First Amendment. It was entirely peaceful. And there was, in addition, a brief by the ACLU. Interestingly, from the labor law standpoint, everybody except for the labor lawyers wanted to condemn the message on the picket signs. They wanted to say, look, we don't stand by the advocacy of proportional hiring, but this is speech protected by the First Amendment, kind of a classic ACLU move. We don't care so much for the message, but we care for the right to say it. Um, whereas the labor lawyers, especially um, Alan Brodsky here, said, could you all just tone down a little bit your criticism of the message? There's nothing wrong with advocating proportional hiring. It's the only way we know that discrimination has been eliminated. Um, but uh, they lost in the U.S. Supreme Court. In an opinion by Justice Felix Frankfurter here on the left, he held for a unanimous court that the picketing was advocating an unlawful message. It was advocating race-conscious hiring. And most people think of Hughes as the first affirmative action case. And there's a long section in the Frankfurter opinion saying, look, if African-Americans in Richmond can protest in favor of proportional hiring of blacks, why Poles in Buffalo and Hungarians in Cleveland and I don't know, he rattled off every sort of white ethnic group and then some non-white groups, um, Mexicans in San Antonio, I think he said, could advocate for race-conscious hiring, and that would be a bad thing. He also said, moreover, California has decided that race discrimination is unlawful, and thus California can prohibit the picketing because the conduct they're advocating, race-conscious hiring, is unlawful. That was completely wrong as a matter of California law at the time. The California voters had just voted down Proposition 11 in the 1948 election, which would have prohibited race discrimination in employment, but they voted it down. And even if race discrimination in employment were unlawful in California at the time, which it wasn't, it's not at all clear that advocating race consciousness in hiring as a remedy for ongoing illegal discrimination would be unlawful. But Frankfurter didn't get too balled up in that. What's somewhat surprising to me was that Justice Hugo Black, here on the right, did not dissent in this case. By the late 1940s, Justice Frankfurter, representing a conservative group in the court, and Justice Black, representing usually four dissenters, but sometimes five progressives, were at war with each other over a whole slew of civil liberties issues, but especially speech. Justice Frankfurter was perfectly willing to uphold injunctions against speech, prosecutions for various kinds of speech, and Justice Black initially had protested this. He had dissented in most of the labor protest cases in the 1940s. And one of the things that I struggled to figure out is why did Justice Black go along with this? Now, some people might say, well, that's because Justice Black was himself a racist. He had been a member of the Ku Klux Klan when he was a young businessman, in, a young lawyer, running a small business in Alabama in the 1930s. Um, he, 
you could argue whether he was a racist or not a racist, but I don't think that's what was actually going on here. What was going on is that Black had really struggled to decide what, which kinds of speech or symbolic conduct like picketing are speech protected by the First Amendment as opposed to just conduct that could be regulated. And he had just the prior year come up with a rule which he only sometimes really stuck to, which said, look, if what the, what the law is prohibiting is the conduct of walking back and forth with a sign on a stick, the, the government can prohibit that. What they can't do is prohibit the message. And as he read what was going on here, the city, the state had prohibited the conduct of standing on the sidewalk rather than the criticism. I don't think you could read the facts of the case that way, but that's what he did. So the Supreme Court upheld the injunction against picketing. The case didn't get much news. Um, that's because the very same day they handed down Hughes versus Superior Court, they handed down a couple of cases upholding crucial provisions of the Taft-Hartley Act against First Amendment challenges, including the provision requiring all union officers to swear a non-communist oath uh, and including the provisions outlawing uh, picketing by labor organizations for purposes of organizing or seeking recognition. The lawyer for the civil rights plaintiffs in Hughes tried to make the best of a bad situation by saying to the People's Daily, the left-wing uh, newspaper, that although the court upheld the injunction, the sort of silver lining is that where Felix Frankfurter said, oh, well, this picketing was contrary to the California non-discrimination policy, at least the Supreme Court thought the California law prohibited race discrimination in employment, so maybe we could make some use of that. They never could, of course, because California didn't until they changed their law. Um, the reaction to Hughes at the time in the conventional press or the right-wing press, the San Francisco Chronicle, um, was much more typical, praising the upholding of the injunction on the grounds that if this kind of speech could be allowed, all sorts of horrible things might happen. The Chronicle's uh, editorial in defense of this opinion is so racist itself that I actually couldn't put much of the language in it because I wasn't willing to put it up on the screen. Um, but sort of saying, look, this is perfectly fine. This kind of picketing has to be stopped. All right, so come with me in a minute to think about other labor civil rights cases for the, the path that was followed at this time elsewhere. Um, in Hawaii, in the 1930s, the economy was a racially segregated plantation economy. There were five white families that were largely descendants of missionaries who'd gone to Hawaii in the mid-19th century who controlled everything. They controlled agriculture, which was by far the dominant industry in Hawaii at the time, sugar especially, slightly less so, pineapples. They controlled shipping in and out of the islands, um, the Matson Line, which was the big uh, cruise, but also um, merchant ships that went from the West Coast to Hawaii were owned by, at least in part, by the big five um, families from Hawaii. And they ran an incredibly racially segregated plantation economy where whites occupied this tiny little strip at the top of the economic hierarchy, Native Hawaiians, Japanese, Chinese, Puerto Ricans, Filipinos, um, Portuguese, were imported labor to work in the fields. The, in the period just after the end of World War II and sort of as it was ending after um, martial law in Hawaii was lifted, because Hawaii was under martial law for much of the war and under, among other things, under the martial law in Hawaii at the time, it became unlawful to quit your job. And indeed, those people who quit their jobs after Pearl Harbor was bombed were forced to go back to their pre-December 7th employment at their pre-December 7th wages. 
the government took over all industry, including all agriculture in Hawaii, and operated it through the big five plantations for the benefit of war production, guaranteeing an 8% profit for the owners, but workers' wages were stuck at pre-war levels. This was regarded as hugely problematic for a whole ton of reasons. The progressive West Coast ILWU decided to try to organize or support the organizing efforts of the agricultural workers in Hawaii and essentially formed one big union that represented everybody from the longshoremen working at the docks to the sugar harvesters, planters, processors, the pineapple workers, and it was very significant that this was an interracial union. Everybody could join, and indeed the union was pretty determined that the leadership would also be racially representative, and partly because of the long history of racial animosity and the growers' very adept use of race and ethnicity to play one group off against the other by saying, oh, well, the Portuguese are a little better than the Filipinos who are at the bottom of the hierarchy. They're better than the Japanese, the Japanese, the Chinese. There was a big racial hierarchy which benefited the growers, hurt everybody else. And so the ILWU had run a very successful organizing campaign and Hawaii had been what we would call a rock-solid red state prior to this organization. It flipped and became, by the early 1950s, a rock-solid blue state and has been so ever since. So that's a great story if you're interested in labor history. So after a huge amount of protest and efforts to organize the ILWU, organized the whole island, and it was a very successful organizing campaign and perceived as a huge threat, not only by the big five families that controlled all the business, but by the business community more generally. I draw your attention to the contrast between Hawaii's labor history in the mid-20th century and California's labor history in the mid-20th century, where there was not the same success in organizing agricultural workers into unions that also represented other workers. And so one of the reasons that the Delano grape strike and boycott ultimately failed in its most ambitious um, goals was because you couldn't actually have a strike in the fields that would affect this supply of agricultural goods, in part because the Teamsters wouldn't support the United Farm Workers, and so they would go ahead and load the struck grapes, in part because the government helped the growers by allowing them to use guest workers brought in through the Brucero program as strike breakers, um, and in part because when the United Farm Workers did get solidarity, as they did from the longshoremen, uh, and went and picketed at the docks in San Francisco, Oakland, and Los Angeles to try and get them not to load the struck grapes, the picketing was enjoined under the Taft-Hartley Act because it was an unlawful secondary boycott, and both the ILWU and the United Farm Workers paid very substantial damages for this effort at inter-union inter solidarity. Um, and so one of the reasons that the UFW was forced into a consumer boycott is that's the only thing they could do consistent with the law at the time. Um, but come with me to... Alaska, because then we're going to go back to Hawaii, and then we'll come up to the present. In Alaska, which was within uh, the West Coast Longshore Union jurisdiction from the 1930s onward, um, there was a thriving timber industry in southeast Alaska. There was a lumber mill in Juneau that um, was the changed ownership just toward the end of the war as the prior owners realized that they were no longer going to make the money they were making through war production and got out while they thought the going was good. It was bought out by a company um, in Oregon who decided that the thing to do was lower labor costs, which they did. So this is the Juno Spruce Lumber Mill in Juneau, Alaska. They assigned the work that, of loading lumber that had been performed by longshoremen in the ILWU to a different union and then sort of had a sweetheart deal with them 
to allow the woodworkers union to cross the ILWU picket line when the ILWU pr protested the reassignment of work at lower wages to the woodworkers. The picket line for a while closed the lumber mill until the woodworkers decided to cross the picket line in the sweetheart deal. And the Juno Spruce Company went into court to get damages from the ILWU. The local in Juno, which they bankrupted the local, but that was a tiny little local. What was more significant is they got a damages judgment against the international, which was a powerful union in the late 1940s because they had just organized Hawaii. They controlled the entire West Coast. They were racially progressive, very activist. And the concern was this union's model could be a real threat to the capitalism as business knew it, throughout the West from Alaska to San Diego and including Hawaii. So they got an enormous damages judgment against the ILWU International. Indeed, it was so large, about $10 million in today's dollars, that it would have bankrupted the union had they had to pay it. The case was litigated all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, which held in 1952, as I told you earlier, that the judgment was enforceable. Then there began a long effort, well, there was already ongoing, a long effort by the LWU not to have to pay the judgment. And here's how Hawaii comes back into the story. The Juno Spruce Company attached all the bank accounts that the international ILWU had in the Bay Area and anywhere else. So the union suddenly had to run an entirely cash um, basis Money they got in dues, they simply never put in the bank. Um, they paid their staff. They paid the printer for their newspaper six months in advance, which caused all sorts of problems. Nobody likes getting a whole paycheck for six months in cash in one lump sum unless you're really good at budgeting. Um, and when the union needed money, and the international, of course, would didn't itself represent anybody directly. They would get per capita payments from a sort of a, a sliver of the dues from the locals that would enable them to do the work that they did. Um, they would just get cash from the locals. The lawyers for the, uh, for the Juno Spruce Company, I am convinced, although I have yet to figure this out through documentary evidence, thought that they could bankrupt the ILWU and perhaps also kill it in Hawaii, which had been such a huge organizing win. And so they went to Hawaii and froze all the bank accounts of the locals in Hawaii. And they took the furniture out of the union hall and the typewriters and things like that. Um, so the union was kind of stuck. They really had to figure out how they were gonna pay this massive judgment. What they ultimately did in a very clever device is they settled a lawsuit that they had against the sugar growers in Hawaii, took that money, settlement money, got the members to agree to give up their claims to their tiny little bits of money, paid off the Juno Spruce Company, and essentially the union got out from underneath this ruinous uh, judgment. The reason that I think the Juno Spruce story is significant is because it drove home to the lawyers and the union leaders the tremendous consequences of picketing in a way that a court might decide violated the Taft-Hartley Act because they very nearly lost all the gains that they had gotten through organizing in Hawaii by the company's effort to collect the judgment from the Hawaii local. But I think the significance for labor law and labor organizing is greater than just injunctions against protest. The government had enacted in 1940 a statute known as the Smith Act, which prohibited advocacy of communism, teaching the works of Marx and Lenin, etc. And what it really prohibited was trying to overthrow the government by force and violence, but it was interpreted to also prohibit being a Communist Party member or teaching communism. There were a couple of very high profile cases, one in New York 
and one in Hawaii that went after the union for the union or people affiliated with, especially the radical left part of the union, for violating the Smith Act. Um, what's also significant is both of these cases generated efforts to go after the lawyers who defended the defendants accused of Smith Act violations. And so here on the left, we have uh, the five lawyers who represented the Smith Act defendants in the most notorious Smith Act case that was in New York, a um, case called Dennis versus United States. Here on the right, we have Harriet Buslog, who defended the Smith Act defendants in Hawaii. Um, these lawyers were sent to prison for six months for contempt of court in connection with their involvement in an in-the-streets protest of the Smith Act prosecutions. Um, and uh, Harriet Buslog was, there was an effort to disbar her in Hawaii for her giving a speech, and this is the photograph of the speech in which she criticized the Smith Act and its use of um, criminal prosecution against leftist activism. And so the lawyers then were suddenly subject to either criminal prosecution as in the left or to losing their license on the right. Um, the lawyers in the left lost their appeal in the U.S. Supreme Court um, in a case called Sacher versus the United States. The lawyers, um, Harriet Buslog, whose married name was Sawyer, um, won her case uh, in part because the composition of the Supreme Court had changed between 1952 and 1959. What I think is amusing about this, you can't read it, I realize, this is a letter to Harriet Buslog, the Hawaiian progressive labor lawyer from a big deal labor lawyer saying, after she won, saying, Dear Harriet, I congratulate you on your great victory. I understand that it was your appearance in court which convinced Justice Stewart to join um, Justice Brennan's opinion for the court. And he said, um, at the bottom of the PS, don't let Felix bother you. He's too old. Felix Frankfurter had dissented in In Re Sawyer saying, you know, she criticized the court's handling of a case in which she was involved representing the defendants. Lawyers can't do that. Frankfurter apparently completely forgot that when he was involved in the celebrated defense of Sacco and Vanzetti in Boston in the 1920s, who were accused wrongfully of having committed some murders, Frankfurter wrote a column for the Atlantic magazine that ran in its May 1927 issue, excoriating the judge in the Sacco and Vanzetti case in terms far harsher than Harriet Buslog Sawyer ever used. Um, but Felix Frankfurter essentially in his old age, I think became a total hypocrite. Um, so that's where things stood circa 1959. It was tough on labor, tough for civil rights groups apparently. And then of course the student lunch counter move, sit-in movement changed things forever. Um, this is a photograph of North Carolina in 1960. My favorite picket sign is, if Khrushchev can eat here, why can't we? Um, obviously, you can tell there's a little tweaking going on. Um, the, and as I told you when we started, after a period of litigation, the civil rights movement succeeded in getting First Amendment protection for that kind of picketing. This is a photograph of a um, mural in Port Gibson, Mississippi, which is in Claiborne County, celebrating the successful picketing that and the boycotts of all the white-owned businesses that ultimately changed um, Mississippi fairly significantly, and this is uh, the front page of the New York Times reporting on the Supreme Court's decision upholding an injunction and damages judgment against the longshoremen, the East Coast, the conservative East Coast Longshore Workers Union, who uh, in protest of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan uh, refused to load or unload ships bound for coming from the Soviet Union holding that a political strike is not speech protected by the First Amendment. 
So what does this all have to do with today? Um, there is an ongoing effort of which I am a part that is being uh, organized and staffing is provided at Harvard Law School, whose agenda is to rethink labor law. Um, this is a short account of the agenda. What would have to change in labor law to challenge the growing economic inequality in this country? Um, and among the things that we are considering are the proposals that you can see up there on the screen. So for example, how should we structure bargaining? One of the things that I think we will very likely propose is to move away from firm-based or enterprise-based bargaining. The employees of this company bargain with this employer in favor of more broad-scale bargaining to try and take wages out of competition. That's what worked when uh, the big three automakers were the major producers of automobiles in the United States. But the United Auto Workers, although they bargained separately with GM, Ford, and Chrysler, they engaged in pattern bargaining. Or in professional sports, entertainment, there is bargaining across the entire sector so that companies don't bid against each other to bid down wages. I think the story about Hawaii and the ILWU is a great example of not merely sectoral bargaining, all agricultural workers or all sugar workers, but indeed regional bargaining in those areas where workers go from doing day labor and construction to dishwashing to agriculture, have a regional form of setting of minimum labor standards so that there isn't competition that drives down wages. Who bargains and over what? The National Labor Relations Act, as it was revised in 1947 in the Taft-Hartley Act, excludes independent contractors. It excludes supervisors. And so that means that the person who delivers food stuff through Amazon or the person who makes your coffee drink at Starbucks are excluded because Starbucks treats lots of their baristas as supervisors and Amazon, of course, treats all their delivery drivers as independent contractors. I think we need to get rid of the exclusions of those categories of workers, not to mention the exclusions of agricultural workers, domestic workers, so that we have a more sensible way of bargaining for on behalf of everybody who works, with everybody who pays them, without regard to who's technically employed by whom. Um, what kinds of organizations build worker power is one of the issues that we're looking at. Why was the ILWU successful? In part, because they represented lots of people. In part, because they were incredibly inclusive in their membership and very creative about trying to make sure that the leadership reflected the views of the membership. Um, there was also lots of things that the ILWU could do that would recruit people into the union by providing legal services for them in wage and hour cases that weren't covered by the collective bargaining agreement. Um, they negotiated with them over the housing that was provided by the planters for people working in the fields. Unions provide benefits. The Writers Guild of America, about which I have written, um, enforces intellectual property rights on behalf of writers. Their copyrights overseas, they don't have copyrights in the U.S., and their rights to residuals. They train showrunners, which is the people who manage television shows who are Writers Guild members. So there are lots of things that unions can do that help workers, that they organize the labor market, they're beneficial to employers, and I think we're looking at things like that. Um, how can law facilitate the formation and sustainability of organizations? You might have read in the news in June of last year that the Supreme Court decided suddenly that um, the contracts that require government employees to pay a fee to a union that represents them to discharge the 
unions' costs in negotiating and administering the collective bargaining agreement, so-called fair share or agency fees, the Supreme Court discovered that the only First Amendment right that government employees have is the right not to pay fees to the union that represents them. Um, and it's true, that is the only First Amendment right that employees have with respect to the negotiation of their wages and working conditions. Um, if you are a government employee, don't go into your supervisor's office and demand a raise. You could be fired for that because that is not speech protected by the First Amendment. But paying dues to the union to do the same thing is, or refu refusing to pay dues. Paying dues, not protected. Refusing to pay dues is protected. I mean, this is craziness. Um, I, you know, I don't care where you come out on whether unions are horrible or good, at least the law should be consistent across uh, categories. Um, how should law treat worker collective action? Basically what I've spent a lot of time telling you today is that the law's protection for civil rights protest mattered, its denial of protection for labor protest also mattered, and it's time to eliminate that difference. How can we provide benefits for workers in a system where most benefits are tied to employment? And you know, Medicare for all might be a lovely thing until that happens, or it might be a terrible thing. I'm not taking a position on that. I need to study it more. But until that happens, it's tied to employment. How can we make sure that Uber drivers get health insurance just like you see employees get health insurance, or UPS drivers who are unionized. Um, how should protective labor legislation be enforced? The whole thought, thinking of the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act, was that it would be enforced through collective bargaining agreements privately, through arbitration or through direct action, negotiation. You wouldn't have to go to court to recover wages that you were entitled to or to if you believed you had been retaliated against for standing up for your rights. And then the civil rights law and other laws come along and say, no, 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 we're going to rely on court action. What is the right mix of private contract versus court action? What's the difference between collective bargaining that's enforced by arbitration, where you have sophisticated parties on both sides who have power, who know what they're doing, who can negotiate for a fair arbitration system, and individual employment arbitration, which, you know, all of you have signed an individual employment or, or um, consumer arbitration, where if you have a concern about unfairness with, you know, your cell phone provider, you can't sue them. You can arbitrate on terms that they wrote, that they administer. What's the right system to protect the rights, whether they come from statute or contract, that is fair to both sides. You know, the weird thing about the whole Juno Spruce story involving the endless cat and mouse game to collect the judgment is that the money that the ILWU got in Hawaii from settling the wage and hour case against the sugar plant planters, that money wound up paying the attorney's fees of the fleet of lawyers who represented the company. The workers never got the money. The company never got the money. The lawyers got all the money. That's good for lawyers, perhaps not so good for everybody else. Um, and then finally, um, recognizing that the regime I've told you about, focusing primarily on unions and collective bargaining, is only one part of a complex web of st federal, state, and local statutory law, cases, how should all of these be tied together? The example I want to give you is that the city of Seattle was concerned about wages and working conditions of for hire drivers, both taxis, traditional taxis, as well as app-based systems like Uber and Lyft. And so they enacted a statute allowing for collective bargaining by the app-based drivers with the companies. The Chamber of Commerce, which is the business lobbies, litigation people, zipped right into federal court to get that ordinance enjoined as being a violation of federal antitrust law. That is, the argument is that collective action by workers who, because they're independent contractors, are not covered by the NLRA and therefore have no right to bargain collectively, 
Collective action, they argue by them, is an antitrust violation. It's a conspiracy and restraint of trade. And so, you know, either we need to have workers enabled to bargain collectively, or we don't. But it's very strange that somebody who, if we could treat them as an employee, would have a right to join a union, but since they're not, their collective action violates federal unfair competition law. So we need to sort of rationalize the whole system. All of these proposed reforms are on the agenda. All of them essentially are an effort to fix the mistakes of the 40 years between 1940 and 1980. And um, I think we would all, business and labor, would be better off with uh, some updating of the law. Thank you very much. I talked too long, and so I don't have time for collective questions. I apologize. But if you've got something you'd like to talk about with me, I'll hang around for a little bit, and I'd be delighted to speak with you. Thank you very much for coming today.